Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs> That's a good one. Famous English figure skaters. You're funny, Gavin. You're funny. Yes. The following podcast contains... But swearing and using dirty words is not one of my vices. I don't use foul language, and I don't like to hear anyone else use it either. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you uh, heard about athletes taking a knee and thought that it meant busting some chick's kneecap, <laughs> what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 432, the Whack Herd Round the World edition of the show, where we talk about that time when Nancy Kerrigan got kneecapped by a bunch of dipshits. Stay tuned. What the Hell Are You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Johnson's Protective, providing athletic support to athletes for three generations. In the rough and tumble world of contact sports, safeguarding the family jewels is critical, and that's why professional athletes around the world protect theirs with Johnson's Protective. From our standard jockstrap to our UltraGuard Codpiece 4000 with reinforced titanium shell and impact-resistant gel pouch, Johnson's Protectives provides first-class crotch security whatever sport you play. Don't take a chance. Take the field with a Johnson's Protective. And now a page from our Sunday Morning Almanac, January 6th, 1994, 25 years ago today. The day the genteel sport of figure skating became a media circus. For that was the day an assailant clubbed Nancy Kerrigan on the leg as she left the ice after practice at the U.S. Olympic trials in Detroit. Someone was running by me and, and he just like whacked me with this long black like, stick. The attack plunged Kerrigan's Olympic dreams into doubt and focused suspicion on rival skater Tanya Harding. How are you feeling right now? It's been a long week. Within days, Harding's estranged husband, Jeff Gillooly, was arrested, along with three other men. Harding herself, on the other hand, proclaimed her innocence. I may have some bad points about me, but overall, I think I'm a pretty good person. I've mentioned before I didn't play any kind of sports as a kid. There were reasons for this. Because he was fat. Yeah, but still, there were other reasons. But, 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 never mind. Just because I didn't play competitive sports doesn't mean that I'm a stranger to competition. I, too, know the agonies of defeat. That thrill of victory! That one, not so much. Now, personally, I'm not a competitive person. I know what I'm good at, and I know what I'm not good at it. And if I'm not good at something, I just don't do it. Then why do you keep doing this? What? I'm not going to dignify that with an answer. Despite not playing team sports, I experienced what it might be like to be surrounded by driven competitive players who would stop at nothing to win. Growing up, we called her mom. I don't want to paint my mother as one of those people who ground their victory in your face by making you feel like a personal failure because you were a big loser, 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 loser. She wasn't like that at all. 
No, it was my sister who was like that. But my mom simply believed in playing to win. And if you were old enough to want to play the game, then by God, you were old enough to lose the game. Our family game nights were not the wholesome card games that were portrayed in the Uno ads. Now the river was low and the boat wouldn't go, so we took out the you know, you know. Now Sally's first rate and she leads with the eight, but I can't follow suit, you know. The cards come my way, but Joe reverses the play. I could be here for days, you know. Then Fred shrieks, I win, with a smart aleck grin and says, it's only a game, you know. Dad? Yeah. You know, Deluxe You Know and Ono 99, holiday card games from Valentine. What they were was a precursor to someone storming off in tears because they had been double reversed and left holding the entire goddamn deck in their hands. Owls of derisive laughter, boys. Uno, Skipbo, Rummy, Go Fish, Crazy Eights, Texas Eight Hold'ems with Progressive Ante, No Wilds because we don't fucking play like pussies at this table. It was all the same story. Now, my father would play a conservative long game, not taking risk, not really trying to win too hard because he knew not to fuck with my mom over cards. My mother and sister both played like they, were learned, like they learned the game in an after-hours mafia card den, and then there was me. Losers. Slowly being taken to the cleaners on every goddamn hand. I wasn't a particularly bad card player. I don't know how you can be a bad Uno card player, but I didn't have the drive to win that seemed to come genetically from my mother down through the female line of my family. And I'd get upset about the 18 shit hound in a row when I was a child, so I'd react childlessly and start lobbying cheating allegations. Now this shit would not fly with my mom because she didn't cheat. She was just better at the game than I was and she had no compunction telling me that. So as I grew older, I learned the secret to playing cards with my mom. The only winning move is not to play. And instead became a spectator as my mother and sister engaged in what could be best called the Thunderdome of card games. Two men enter, one man leaves. I'm not saying that they were violent. I am saying that the possibility of competitive violence was always on the table. Game nights in my family growing up we're not for the faint of heart. Which brings me to this week's topic. 30 years ago, the week this podcast was released, a slipping figure skater Nancy Kerrigan got bookshwacked by a hitman hired by the ex-husband of her skating rival, Tanya Harding. Now, for the younger of you out there, or those whose advancing age has rendered this information highly irrelevant, Nancy Kerrigan was an Olympic figure skater in the early 1990s. Figure skating is the most popular Winter Olympic sport in the United States for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's an elegant and challenging sport, and the graceful ice ballets are watched by millions every Winter Games, and the competitive nature of the sport brings a sense of drama that's missing with some of the other Winter Olympiad. I mean, how the fuck can you get worked up about curling? But this is now this is the grown up, responsible, mature and non sexist explanation about why Olympic figure skating is so popular. But there's another reason that's equally, if not in some ways, more important than this. Olympic figure skaters are. Well, how can I put this? Um, easy on the eyes. Yeah. Both men and women skaters are uh, ridiculously fit and the rigors of their sports sculpt their young bodies in a way that are very nice to look at and not overtly intimidating, like, say, bodybuilders. Add to that costumes and music and how certain kinds of people don't perform at high level in ice skating. You mean like fatties and uggos? And it's pretty easy to see why it's so popular. Figure skating debuted in the Summer Olympics of 1908 in London and moved to the more seasonally appropriate Winter Games in 1924. 
It is one of the first Olympic Games that allowed women to compete and the only winter sport allowing women until 1936. The U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum tells me, quote, figure skating events include freestyle, pairs, ice dance, and synchronized team skating. Ice dancing didn't become an Olympic sport until 1976. Team figure skating is the newest Olympic skating event that first started in 2014 Sochi Games. Tinley Albright became the first lady skater from the U.S. to win a gold at the 1956 Cortina D'Ampezzo Games, unquote. The United States is the current leader in medals for the sport, followed by contemporary Russia, then the former Soviet Union, Austria, and Canada to round out the top five. The U.S. has twice as many total medals as the next closest country, Russia, although the margins for gold medals are considerably closer. Comic bastards. It is also a very expensive sport in which to train and compete. Money.com lays out the cost of the 2018 article, quote, Coaching fees, travel expenses, and physical therapy and athletic conditioning to keep the body operating at elite levels add up. But figure skating is among the priciest, with costs running more than $35,000 a year to as much as $50,000 annually by some estimates. After a figure skater again advances past beginner levels, private coaching fees range from $65 an hour to $120 an hour for a coach who's trained in successful international competitors. Choreography per program is a separate fee, generally running between $1,500 and $5,000, and generally perform a new routine each year for both a short and long skate events. Families also fork out for ballet or ballroom dancing lessons, private training in the gym, even acting lessons for skaters who want to help who want help learning how to convey certain emotions with facial expressions. Unquote. These kinds of expenses necessarily limit the participant pool for the sport. This is not to say there are not top skaters of all colors and ethnicities. There are. However, as a general rule, the only thing wider than the pool of potential top talent in the United States is the ice upon which they skate. And it isn't like public schools are offering ice dancing programs to their students outside of some very, very tony neighborhoods in Connecticut. And uh, those neighborhoods are best categorized as also being very, very white. Nancy Kerrigan, who is white. Now, come on. Her name was Nancy. Did not come from affluent family. The da- she was the daughter of a Stoneham, Massachusetts welder who worked three jobs to pay for her ice skating lessons, including driving a Samboni in exchange for rink time. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm guessing her dad probably didn't complain too much about the Zamboni part. Nancy began skating competitively at nine years old, which is pretty common for top-level skaters, and she began to com- be competitive nationally in 1987. Yeah, well, I was smoking joints in the snow behind my high school. Nancy Kerrigan was already on the track for the Olympics. I'm not saying that makes one of us better than the other, but I can't help believing that one of us was having more fun. Nancy was a highly skilled skater. She took bronze in the 91 World Figure Skating Camp Championships, a very good year for U.S. figure skating. That same year, the U.S. swept the top three with Christina Yamaguchi and Tanya Harding. <laughs> We'll get there, taking gold and silver, respectively. Kerrigan took the bronze in the 92 Olympics, and like I said, Kerrigan was a very good ice skater. But, possibly, maybe, I don't know about ice skating. Yamaguchi and Harding were maybe better ice skaters. I really don't know these things. Christina Yamaguchi was a cultural phenomenon during her time on the ice. The Japanese-American skater was unconditionally the top figure skater in the world at the time and featured heavily in the marketing for the sport. She had a slew of product endorsement deals and was a frequent guest on television. And when she retired from professional ice skating, the top two U.S. women on skates were Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. They were all best friends. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Quoting from a 2017 Rolling Stone article, quote, 
Harden and Kerrigan never seemed to qualify as friends who confided in each other. But from most accounts, they had been professional acquaintances who exchanged pleasantries at competitions. After the attack, Kerrigan said she initially doubted Harden's involvement in the plot because, as she put it, we were competitors, but we were friendly, unquote. Here's the thing. Competition in the Olympics pays a lot of lip service to the idea of teams. Team USA, Team Russia, Team Moldavia, whatever. But when it comes down to the reality and gold medals... There can be only one. And the athletes standing on the center podium wearing that gold medal might be wearing the color of their nation's team, but they had to beat every other person, not just on the other country's team, but also their country's team to get there. And from the time they started training for the Olympics, they were trained, taught, and fucking indoctrinated to be the motherfucker wearing that tacky-ass gold medal. Your teammates your competition, not your friends. This was not helped by the way the media treated Kerrigan and Harding. Though the two women had came from similar backgrounds, Nancy Kerrigan, a willowy brunette with classic good looks and a poised demeanor taught from childhood by a string of high-priced tutors and trainers to give off the aesthetic vibe of a traditional figure skater, ethereal and distantly beautiful, even her name Nancy screaming American middle class. And then you had Tanya, dirty blonde with a body build that kids today would call... Snatched waist lump the queen. Tanya was shorter, more muscular, and lacked the deportment of a true champion, according to the media. Harding put it succinctly in ESPN's Price of Gold, she's a princess, I'm a piece of crap, speaking of Kerrigan. I want to be exceedingly clear, Tanya Harding was not out of shape. She had what we today would think of as a gymnast physique. And her style of skating was more aggressive and athletic than Nancy's more traditional ballet style of performance. Their two styles were different, and to the gatekeepers of the sport, Nancy was the more proper of the two, and whispered things like that into the ears of a very receptive media. Let's go back to Rolling Stone to learn a little something about Tanya's pre-Olympic life. Quote, Tanya Maxine Harding was born in 1970 and grew up in Portland, Oregon to parents Lavona Golden, a waitress, and Al Harding, Golden's fifth husband, who worked at a rubber company. In a documentary on E!, Al Harding recalls the family living in a trailer and notes that though he was close with his daughter, his wife was alcoholic and abusive. My relationship with my mom is really bad, the 15-year-old Tanya said in a clip from The Price of Gold. She hits me and she beats me and she drinks. She's an alcoholic. Golden has disputed her portrayal as a villain in the upcoming film, saying that she has never been abusive, unquote. By all accounts, Tanya Harding was a powerhouse skater. She was landing complicated jumps by the age of 10. Her style was fast, and some called it aggressive. What they didn't call it was graceful, which was important to people important in figure skating. The judges wanted a ballet on ice skates, and Tanya was more hip-hop video dancer on skates. And while Kerrigan would skate to a piece of classical music, Tanya would skate to... Tone Loke or ZZ Top. Combine that with her homemade costumes crafted by her alcoholic, abusive truck stop waitress mother, she didn't fit the ideal of what a figure skater ought to be to people who thought things about things like that. Top all that up with Tanya's love of pool, pickup trucks, and shooting guns, and it all added up to one thing in the minds of the media that covered the sport. Tanya Harding was what uh, we call, you know, white trash, plain and simple. Yeah, I want to take a second here to talk to you about white trash. Over the years, I heard all the names. Hillbilly, Clodhopper, Redneck, Holler Trash, Cousin Fucker. Many of them from my cousins who looked upon the mountain folks on my mom's side of the family as beneath them. 
coming from a town of 900 people like they did. And that's how pernicious class system is in this country when white people have to divide themselves up when they have time between all the racist divisions they're usually so busy with. Funny thing was, all the people I heard white trash comments from were and are considered white trash by folks just a sliver above them on the tier of white people packing order. So being called white trash isn't fun, and it also doesn't mean a whole fucking lot to those of us who get called it. I come from white trash, and I very much still am white fucking trash. Tanya did that most white trash th thing that white trash girls do. She married a scumbag. Sad but true. In the world Tanya grew up in, there were a preponderance of scumbags. So it was only natural she was going to wind up with one. And also in this world, the ratio of loser men to talented, ambitious women is nothing short of staggering. This is because every douchebag understands that if he can get an ambitious, talented woman to fall in love with him, you never work a day in your life. Tanya was 15 when she met her scumbag, a local boy by the name of Jeff Galuli, who was 17. Details on Jeff prior to the run by Wacky are sketchy and largely dependent on what the teller thinks about Tanya. He was either a caring, supportive guy or the guy that threatened to break Tanya's leg and ruin her skating career. <laughs> she told him she wanted to divorce him. Looking at the photos and subsequent interviews with Jeff, I'm leaning very strongly towards the scumbag side of the equation. Harding was divorced from Galuli by at the time of the incident, but the two were attempting to reconcile for the umpteenth time because, again, scumbags and girls that love scumbags go through this. This was something that Tanya has maintained was forced on her by the U.S. figure skating officials because it made her seem more wholesome and less, you know, partly slutty with a chance of severe sluttiness. And it was during this enforced reconciliation that the plot was hatched. From an interview on BleacherReport.com, quote, It all started when Stan's phone rang a day or two before Christmas 1993. His uncle Derek Smith called to ask Stan, then 22, if he would hurt someone for money. Pressed for specifics, Smith said if Stance would take down a skater, according to Stance FBI confession, unquote. So, when Stan said yes... He and his uncle drove to Porton, where he met with a man named Sean Eckhart. Eckhart was working as Tanya Harden's bodyguard, and the man had a re reputation for being a bit of a fabulist. You're telling stories about his James Bond-style exploits for his professional bodyguard company. Needless to say, Sean Eckhart did not have James Bond-style exploits. He just made it up. Because Sean Eckhart was a dipshit. None of these guys were exactly rocket scientists, and the biggest dipshit of them all was Jeff Galuli. Going back to Bleacher Report, quote, Galuli showed up a little while later after Stanton Smith arrived. Eckhart pressed record on a tape recorder he had hidden under a paper towel. God, these guys are clever. He and Smith figured they could use the recording against Galuli if Galuli turned on them or refused to pay. The four men, Galuli, Eckhart, Smith, and Stant, discussed the best way to attack Kerrigan. Stanton Galuli told the FBI that Eckhart suggested killing Kerrigan, but nobody else wanted to go that far. Galuli said damaging Kerrigan's right leg was the best plan because that is her landing leg, and if she couldn't land, she couldn't skate, unquote. And in exchange for $6,500, the hit was set. What followed 
was a bad situation comedy as the dumbest criminals in the world began to stalk Nancy Kerrigan around the country, constantly failing to be in the same place as Nancy Kerrigan on several dates. Stan's confession of the FBI gives a litany of details on how ineptly the plan was conceived and implemented that, you know, it would require a montage replete with a yakety sack soundtrack to accurately depict if it was on film. You gonna play it? No, no, I don't think the moment's right. When the criminal masterminds had finally got the confirmation of where Kerrigan would actually be and when she would actually be there by, you know, reading the newspaper, Stan and his uncle Derek Smith flew to Detroit. Here is how the hit went down. Again, for Bleacher Report. Quote, The next day, January 6th, Stant woke up to a frigid Detroit morning, and he went out bundled up against the cold. He wore, according to his FBI convention, a dark brown dress shirt, a black leather jacket, brown hiking boots, and black leather gloves. He put a collapsible baton in his pants. Smith and Stant arrived at Kobo Arena and sat on opposite ends of the arena, but inside of each other. Soon, Stant gave the signal that the attack was imminent. He stood up and sat back down. Again, just clever. And then left to get the getaway car. Stant followed an ABC cameraman who was following Kerrigan as she left the ice. Stant rushed through a curtain. He walked to the right of Kerrigan and swung at her with two hands on the baton. He connected about an inch above her right knee and later said he knew he had not done much damage because the sound had not been of bone breaking. He ran towards the exit door he had scoped out the day before. It had been unlocked then. Now, it was chained shut. With nowhere to go and a shocked, soon-to-be-enraged crowd behind him, he barreled into the plexiglass at the bottom half of the door. Stan blasted through and found himself on the outside in the snow. He heard someone yell, Stop him! But was soon running free. He threw the baton down the car, he found Smith, and they drove away. Unquote. And just genius level criminals here. I mean, seriously, you guys knew that I was going to play Yakety Sax after I mentioned it, right? As the news of the attack was on every television in America, Sean Eckhart, criminal genius, was busy bragging about his perfect crime to a friend of his. I want to stress again how fucking stupid everyone involved in this, including Tanya Harding. More from Bleacher Report, quote, in the days before the attack, Eckhart told Saunders about it, playing the tape he had made of the meeting at his parents' house, and even showed him a list of other targets in the ice skating world. But Saunders couldn't understand much of what was said on the tape because the audio quality was so poor, and Eckhart was known for making stuff up. So Saunders didn't think much of it. Saunders saw Eckhart soon after the attack. He comes walking in and he says, We did it! We did it! Super excited, Saunders said. Saunders immediately started trying to talk Eckhart into turning himself in. But Eckhart saw opportunity. He wanted to use the attack as a way to boost World Bodyguard Services. He planned to be with Harding at the airport in Portland when she returned from Detroit, where she skated and won the national championships the day after Kerrigan was attacked. There would be a lot of press there, and he would be, he would be identified as her bodyguard, and he figured other figure skaters would want bodyguards too in wake of the attack. Saunders says that he spoke with the FBI on January 10th about what Eckhart had told him. He told them a similar story to what some TV stations and police in Detroit had already heard in an anonymous letter, the writer of which had heard about the attack because Eckhart's father had bragged about it. Saunders says as the FBI interview wound down, the FBI investigators asked him for a physical description of Sean Eckhart. He asked if they had a TV. They turned it on. The news was on. And there was Eckhart with Harding at the airport. That's him, Saunders said, unquote.
I'm surrounded by imbeciles, complete morons. With such criminal masterminds at work, it didn't take long for everything to be learned by the cops. Because the plan was excessively complex, because excessively complex is something the simple minds always believe to be important. And Jeff Galuli is extremely simple-minded. So here is the plan, the smart plan, that was conceived by Jeff Galuli, who was starting to see what he considered to be real money roll in as Tanya's professional stature rose. The trickle of endorsement deals and donations for training, the total of which has never been specified, but in all probability was far below the kind of six-figure deals Harding would get if she won gold at the Olympics. Sorry, Pops. They don't put nobodies on cereal boxes. And with Yamaguchi retired, Harding's biggest competition was Nancy Kerrigan. Ergo, Jeff's tiny mind concluded, Kerrigan had to be taken out. Again, I point out that in the world of sports, sports, figure skating endorsement deals then and now are a pittance compared to what a professional athlete of even the middle level of the NFL, MLB, or the NBA would pull in. And this dipshit was at least considering killing Nancy Kerrigan for it. The man had a 22 caliber mind in a 44 Magnum world. The cops soon had all the conspirators in custody and all of them were singing like they were trying to out for a spot on the gong show. But there was one question that everyone wanted answers. Was Tanya in on the plan? Tanya Harden maintained at the time and maintains now that she did not know about the plan before it happened and only discovered after the fact. This is what she pled to guilty to in court. Galuli has claimed from the beginning that not only did Tanya know, but she was an active participant in every facet of the planning. To which I can only say and remind you, pod friends, that guy's a real scumbag. Some versions of the story have Galuli engaged in the classic double cross, planning the whole thing not only to take out Kerrigan and watch the money roll in, but also knowing that Tanya would eventually come under suspicion and thus exacting some sort of vengeance on his ex-wife for the humiliation of filing for a divorce. And this is giving Jeff Galuli far too much credit. The only classic double cross this idiot could pull off is crossing piss streams at a urinal trough in a Portland dive bar. The only people who specifically said that Tanya knew about the plan are the douchebags who ineptly plotted and blundered their way through the actual goddamn crime. So did Tanya know? Well, there was never enough evidence to charge her with, and that says something. There was only evidence that she helped cover it up, which is, again, giving a lot of credit to these shitheads after the fact. She pleaded guilty to covering it up after the fact and was given parole and a fine, and if you want my opinion... Not so much. I would say she knew something about it because I cannot imagine Jeff Galuli not bragging to her about how he was going to, hey, babe, I'm going to take care of everything for you. Like an even lower rent, Dennis Duffy. Dennis Duffy, people king. She also knew that Galuli was the least reliable asshole on the planet and likely didn't believe a word of it. But, you know, she loved the guy. That's why, why trash girls stay with the scumbags. They really do love them and give them access to their bank account. I don't think Tanya Harden was in any of the meetings where Jeff and the team of dolts actually put the plot together and put it in motion. And when it happened, I suspect she had the kind of reaction that most women who date men like Jeff have when all the shit they do finally comes home to roost. What the fuck do I do now? And made yet another in a long line of bad decisions that probably started the first time she left Jeff Galuli buy her a beer at age 15. 
In the aftermath, Harding won her spot on the U.S. Olympic team, though not without controversy, since she was already accused of being in on the plot. Kerrigan had not been seriously injured. See again the dipshits carrying out the attack. And she was also given a spot on the team. The two skated in the 94 Winter Olympics in what must have been a frosty meeting. Really, Dave? <laughs> Sorry, I can't help myself. Kerrigan skated flawlessly, and Harding did not. One of the most famous images from that year was Harding hoisting her skate for the judges to see, showing the broken lace that interfered with her performance. They allowed her to restart, but it didn't help. Chances were the scandal would have kept her out of meddling in the first place, but for, <laughs> unless she did anything short of an earth-shattering performance, but uh, that wasn't what she delivered. She placed eighth overall. Garrigan skated to a silver medal that year because a young Ukrainian named Oksana Bayul nailed her performance for gold. There was a whole controversy about that, too, and didn't really paint Nancy Kerrigan in the best light, but still, we'll leave that for another show. On the judicial side, the courts handed out sentences, quoting now from Wikipedia, quote, on February 1st, 1994, Galuli's attorney negotiated a plea agreement in exchange for testimony regarding all involved parties in the attack. In July, Galuli was sentenced to two years in prison after publicly apologizing to Kerrigan, adding, any apology coming from me rings hollow. Galuli and Eckhart pleaded guilty to racketeering, while Stanton and Smith pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit second-degree assault. Judge Donald Launder noted the attack could have injured Kerrigan more seriously. On March 16th, Harding pleaded guilty to conspiracy to hinder prosecution as a Class C felony offense at her Multnomah County Court hearing. She and her lawyer, Robert Weaver, negotiated a plea agreement ensuring no further prosecution. Unquote. Kerrigan left competitive figure skating shortly after. She too stumbled in the spotlight, committing the cardinal sin of bad-mouthing Disney at Disneyland. You can't do that. You can't do that. Harding was barred from ever skating professionally again, and she did all the things a quasi-celebrity of her level did at the time. Amateur boxing career, a sex tape with Jeff Galuli. I watched it for research. Uninspired. Clichéd. Eckhart is dead, Galuli has changed his name, and Stan has found Jesus. All the things people do when their 15 minutes of fame for this kind of thing runs out. Harding had a bit of a renaissance a few years ago when I, Tanya was released, casting her in a far more favorable light than the contemporary press coverage did when the incident occurred. She apologized to Kerrigan once, and it went about as well as you can imagine. Stilted, awkward, and totally unbelievable from both parties. Which, yeah, you know... You can understand. The Olympic Games are ostensibly this massive celebration of human achievement. The pinnacle of athletic performance and an aspirational event for all humanity to reach towards. This, of course, is a... Uh, this is such a crock of shit. Whatever the intentions of the modern founders were, and I'm fairly certain they knew exactly what they were creating, the modern Olympic Games is an exercise in unfettered capitalism. Shit, even when the communists were a thing, they too were playing the capitalist marketing game. The games are about position, politics, power, and payouts. All that Tanya and Nancy's little fracas did was pull back the curtain and expose the cutthroat ethos that pervades the competition. Over the past few decades, we've been exposed to the reality of the games, drugging, cheating, and way too much sexual abuse, as if there's such a thing as an allowable amount of sexual abuse. And you know what? This is endemic to anything where money and influence is at stake. The only difference between Jeff Galuli and the International Olympic Committee is the grifters on the IOC are good at crime, and Jeff Galuli was not. 
The victims remain the same. The athletes who spent their lives and their meager fortunes pursuing the lie of being the best of the world all for a pittance. Say what you will about professional sports like football. At least they're paying for the broken bodies that are the inevitable byproduct of the consumer entertainment machine that is professional sports. So, you know, let's not pretend that the Olympics is all noble. We are men of action. Lies do not become us. Nancy and Tanya are both victims in this farce, and the people who win are the people who stand on top of the charade, charging obscene amounts of money to create champions. The only difference between them and the dipshits plotting to whack Nancy in the knee is they got there first with the best bullshit. Also, if they want a competitor taken out, they don't need to hire a two-bit hitman for 6500 bucks. They can just whisper things like white trash in the press's ear and how unworthy they are to hold a gold medal, and they don't have to pay a dime for the crime. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. That is it for the show this week. Welcome to 2024. And we have such stories to tell you this year. Stories of daring do and dastardly deeds and that's just in the series we're starting about the Late Night Wars next week. Oh, yeah. Jay Leno's finally getting the episode he deserves. Speaking of deserving, rate and review this show so it helps others find the show and find out the kind of punishment I think Jay Leno deserves. I'm not saying Letterman should have taken out Leno's knee. I'm saying I would have been okay with it. Kick us a dollar to keep the wheels turning around here at patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. Do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing otherwise... He knows a guy. I'm just saying, he knows a guy. And so for me, Dave, don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years rocking my peers and putting suckers in fear. Bledsoe, producer, making the tears rain down like monsoon. Listen to the bass go boom. Gavin! And all the fictional incompetent hitmen on this show, we want to say that when Mama said knock you out, she meant that metaphorically and violence is never the solution to your problems. Unless, of course, you're talking about Jay Leno. And we'll see you all next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. 
You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. No Jack Parr in this shithole.